If you're like me, you might hear estate planning and go, ugh, gross. You might think to yourself, I'm not sure why I'd bother with that. Estate planning is only for the uber rich. Tallgrass begs to differ. Tallgrass founding attorneys Laurel and Riley think everyone should have an estate plan. They know estate planning seems untouchable to a lot of folks, like something you have to do inside a stuffy law firm of stuffy McLawyer Pants Esquire. But I promise you, Tallgrass is nothing like that. For one, they work out of their home so their clients can feel at home. They obsess, because they're nerds, over making clients feel like they belong and are supposed to be there. Also, their kids might make an appearance. They will take time to answer all of your questions, even the uncomfortable ones. They will work relentlessly to make sure your plan is exactly what you need to feel secure and at peace. So if you've been putting off planning for what's going to happen after you've gone, it's time for you to give Tallgrass a call at 918-770-8940 and start your plan today. Or visit their website at tallgrassestateplanning.com and schedule a free initial consultation. For free! It's right there on the website. And of course, there's more, because this is a podcast ad. If you tell them you're a Pot for Good listener, they're going to take 25% off their service fees. Just tell them Pot for Good sent you. Stop thinking estate planning isn't for you and give Tallgrass a call today at 918-770-8940 or on their website, which I'm not going to read out to you again. It's in our show notes. Thank you, Tallgrass. Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we learn from those doing good in Tulsa, why they care, what we can do, and most importantly, what you can do. Pod for Good is produced and edited by Ranai Productions, which is me, and can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. I am, as always, your chief philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller. And today, our guest is Toby Jenkins, CEO of Oklahoma for Equality and the executive director of the Dennis Arneal Equality Center. We talked to Toby about the history of Oklahomans for Equality. We talk about trans rights, and we talk about that time Jesse was confused for Toby's son at a 1,400-year-old Turkish bath. And also we learned that 918 The Gaze is still in operation. So if anyone you know needs some counseling out there, the number still works. Enjoy. We are very excited and honored to have Toby Jenkins, the director of the Equality Center and other things on the podcast today. Toby, how are you doing? I'm good. And I'm the CEO and executive director of Oklahomans for Equality That's one. and the Dennis Arnell Equality Center. So Oklahomans for Equality is our organization that is 41 years old, was founded in the 19, early 1980s. And the Dennis Arnell Equality Center is the headquarters of our organization. And it's also a program of Oklahomans for Equality, in addition to several other things we do. So it's sort of like the thing when they have like a sports stadium where the stadium has a name and the field also has oh, a yeah. name. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And you can just easily say the Equality Center and we're we're fine with that. Most people know where you're talking about. That's true. I mean, up until this moment, I didn't realize there were two separate organizations slash programs. Well, slash. they're not two separate organizations. It's actually Oklahomans for Equality is the organization. And there's just two tracks. All right. What's the state of Oklahoma doing to oppress LGBTQIA people today or this week? Well, this week, I'm not so sure that they have queued up something this week specifically, but we do have things that will impact us, especially on the new bill, which has been signed into law, which everybody's kind of flipping out over the fact that it's going to restrict racial theory being taught. But it originally, in its original form, started out as an anti-trans anti-LGBT bill because they were targeting us because we would have universities visit the Equality Center. We would have them for about two or three hours. We'd talk about cultural awareness around LGBT issues. And uh, state university students, I guess, told their legislators. And so when the bill was first introduced uh, back last fall in 2020, and then eventually has now become The law, which says that you can't make anybody feel uncomfortable talking about subjects or make them feel inadequate over one race being superior of another. So all of that got folded into that. It was like the perfect storm of all of our internal insecurities and also our personal biases and our personal 
hatreds. We lumped it all in together in one bill that is now uh, the law of the land. And so educators are now having to reconsider how they're going to talk about uh, multiculturalism within their programs and individuals who anybody who takes any kind of state tax dollars is now going to be put in the situation whether they can expose uh, their employees, their patients, their clients, their students to any kind of awareness about diversity and inclusion where anybody would be made to feel uncomfortable if they disagreed with it or misunderstood it. Now, who's going to who's going to regulate that? Like who's who's it being well, reported to? It's not it's not you can't regulate it. It's always in Oklahoma on these particular bills and these particular laws. They go looking for a problem mm-hmm. and then they create um, a bill around it while they fiddle away their time instead of dealing with the real issues that would really improve our lives and would create more equitable access to all of our citizens. And so this is typical. I've watched it for 25 years now. And prior to that, I watched it on the other side of the aisle. And it doesn't ever seem to diminish and it doesn't ever seem to be a, to go away. And for some reason, LGBTQ people usually are on the whipping post about every every session. To my knowledge, we've not had a session in at least 30 years that we haven't had an anti-LGBT bill that's uh, been queued up. Now, most of the time we're able to defeat them because moderate and reasonable people realize this will be bad for Oklahoma. But the message is still out there. It still picks up news and it still is used to volleyball back and forth between the conservatives and the progressives and the liberals and the, you know, the folks who are trying to not live in the 21st century. And it can be very draining and very discouraging, but it also requires that somebody stand up and say, this is not all right, and you're not running me off. I'm going to outlast you. I'm going to wear you down. I love to tell the story. We just recently lost Bill Gaddis, which was uh, had been state with state representatives, Karen Gaddis's husband. Uh, she was defeated in the election last fall. I loved her work at the the state capitol, and I went to church with her and her husband. And so I attended her her husband's funeral this past weekend. And uh, the one thing that stands out to me about that couple is Karen Gaddis was on the floor of the house, and there was an adoption bill that would have said uh, the state can give dollars to uh, agencies who can refuse to let LGBT people adopt or foster parent. And it was uh, we had so many brave Democrats and and Republicans, uh, many who stood saying this this is a bad bill. They were trying to kill it on the floor. And so I can remember sitting there and looking at Karen Gottis and there being about 35, you know, all the Democratic caucus and the Republicans, several Republicans were standing there. And it sounded like some wildlife film because they were they were saying, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker. And so you have about 35 people doing that in this big state house building and is very resonant. And I'm sitting up there and I'm watching there and they were trying to get the speaker's attention so they could address the dangers of the bill and run out the time. And of course, the speaker refused to even let them speak. And we had two legislators that got in a pushing match with each other on the floor and they were on the same team. That was what was odd to me is even they were fighting the tension in the room. And I'm sitting up in the balcony, the gallery, watching this and tears are just running down my face. And Representative Karen Gaddis, she sends me this text and she says, Toby, Toby, I'm so sorry you're having to see this. I feel so bad for you. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm absolutely thrilled. I have never saw so many people fighting for LGBT people. I'm encouraged that we're wearing them down. We're finally moving into even people who were very conservative politically are saying enough is enough. And they're now standing with us. I said, no, this is, this is, I'm used to this every session. And so this is encouraging to me that the voices are getting louder who are saying we've got to stop this nonsense. Can you give us a little bit of a history of the of Oklahomans for Equality and your history so with the organization? The, let's try to 
keep this short <laughs> uh, so that we won't, because it's, it's a pretty profound story. The first thing I would want to say is most individuals who live in this part of Oklahoma, Northeast Oklahoma, or uh, in the Tulsa area, have assumed that organizations like Oklahomans for Equality are in every major city and that every place has these. And it's just simply not true. In fact, most cities don't have uh, what we have here in Northeast Oklahoma, certainly in Tulsa. And to have such a large, comprehensive LGBTQ community center right in the downtown area and it's serving so many people. I mean, we serve as many people as the center in Philadelphia, the center in Chicago, the center in San Diego, which are all centers that are larger and more heavily funded by their states and their city than certainly uh, our Equality Center is. But our organization was started by a group of LGBT persons right here in Tulsa who had experienced uh, some discrimination in the 70s in the workplace. And they realized that if they did not get organized, and this was beginning to happen all across the country, they had been organizing multiple times, but it would always kind of fall apart. And so Dennis Neal was one of those individuals who had been impacted by discrimination in the workplace, and he knew what it was like. And so he and his friends said, let's get together and organize so that we can take care of our community and maybe change public policy and maybe improve. But the most important thing is we've got to provide social support because there's not any. Now, that was 41 years ago. And so 41 years ago, we could not serve in the military. We could not teach school. We certainly could not get married. That wasn't even even dreamed of at that time. But we were also criminals under the uh, sodomy code. And so those were the realities for individuals like uh, ourselves. And so he and his friends organized what became Oklahomans for Human Rights, which over the years became Tulsa Oklahomans for Human Rights, and then eventually became Oklahomans for Equality. It's um, the same group that it's been for 41 years, and we're, we have the unique blessing of we still have over 100 of the original founders who are still very involved in our organization. They've stayed in Oklahoma. They didn't move to the East Coast or the West Coast to be gay fabulous, where they thought it would have been easier. Uh, instead, they stayed here in Oklahoma, and they have just committed themselves for the last 40 plus years, 44 decades of taking care of the LGBTQ community. The unusual thing about it is while many nonprofits and many elected officials and the culture as a whole is beginning to really warm up to these issues, we're still the only one around doing it. And so if we don't do it, if we don't stand up uh, for uh, sexual and gender minorities, then nobody's going to, because that's what I've learned is I have lots of folks who do activism work where they believe strongly about speaking up for marginalized and oppressed people. but. I never see them run to the fight whenever it's our fight, but we have learned over the years to build alliances that we're there with them. But for some reason, our issues continue to be too much for some people to go too far. And so I am so grateful that we've stayed at it all of these years. And most of that's because we have several people who've been there from the very beginning and have just said the mission's not complete. We need to continue to serve our community, and we need to expand the way we serve our community. And what about your experience with the organization? How did you come? To so my short story is that originally I had left law school to go to seminary to pray the gay away, and uh, much to my parents' disappointment, and I had to do an internship in a church. And so I found a church in Tulsa to do an internship at. I was also working as a juvenile probation officer uh, with Tulsa County Sheriff's Office. And so I landed in Tulsa. You know, I kind of grew up in Oklahoma City and then my family moved to Russellville, Arkansas, and I went to school in Nashville, Tennessee, but was back here um, where most of my family uh, lived in this area. I had lots of cousins and aunts and uncles that lived in the Tulsa area and still do have relatives that live here. So I was doing an internship that summer, and some of the students I was working with in my uh, probational program 
decided to play a joke on me because they had saw in the newspaper a big story in uh, the Tulsa world that said, homosexuals organizing in Tulsa. And in that article, it said there are more homosexuals in Tulsa than there are in San Francisco. Now, that was all made up. That's an mm-hmm. urban legend. None, there's absolutely no truth to that. I remember that, that urban legend from when we were in school. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah that there's more gays <laughs> here than any place else. <laughs> yeah. And um, that's that's where that came from. It came from that just totally pulled out of the air thing to fan the flames. And in there, they said they're organizing and they've got a helpline. And it's 918-743-4297, which spells the gays. And of course, that gay helpline was in the back of a gay bar um, where volunteers would volunteer to answer the phone. The students I worked with saw that newspaper article and they said, you need to call these people. They're trying to reach you. I didn't know who the number was. I called the number and was shocked when it said, hello, you've reached the Tulsa Gay Helpline. And I thought, what is there, a tracking device on me? How did they know? I've not told anybody about this. This is why I'm going to seminary to try to address these issues of um, a conflict over my sexuality. And I was just horrified, but I kept that phone number. And I would call it and they would tell me where they were having meetings and there were clergy persons and psychologists and counselors who were assuring us there was nothing wrong with us and that I was who I was supposed to be and I should not have so much internalized homophobia. Well, I didn't listen to them and I went a different direction and uh, I pursued the path that I thought uh, would fix me and it did not fix me. And I found myself. 15 years later, uh, realizing uh, that I had put myself through a lot of pain. I had married. I had children. So I had to go through a divorce. That meant I, you know, my wife had been, a, had been so supportive through all of this. And my children had to go through that experience. So it was very dramatic. I was working for an elected official. He fired me. I got hired by another one. That elected official fired me. I went to work for another one and that elected official. So in the course of uh, about three months, I had three different elected officials fire me because of my sexuality. Did they not, the the second and third one not check why you left the first one? Well, they did, but they didn't. I I did good work, so they didn't realize there would be so much pushback. But I'd been Mm -hmm. kicked out of the biggest church in town. And so those folks had made it their personal enemy, you know, they they were going to wipe me from the face of the earth. My siblings turned their back on me. I was kicked out of the biggest church account, kicked out of, you know, I was fired by elected officials. And then finally, one elect official, Sally Howe Smith, felt sorry for me. And she didn't care what what my sexual orientation was, but she um, she she hired me. And the elected official who had fired me, took me down to her office and said, do you think you can take Toby? I'm not going to be able to use him because all of my constituents are mad about it. And as he walked out the door and he said, one more thing, he's an avowed homosexual. Is that going to be a problem? And she was a heavy chain smoker. And she went, no, it will not. That's his personal business. I'm only concerned about his work life. (laughs) And and she remained a close friend. In fact, became the very first person to ever come to the first elected official to ever come to the elect, uh, come to the equality gala. And she now has a child who is um, the leader of a transgender program in Denver, Colorado, doing amazing work. And so um, Sally was good and she was good to me. But I had gotten fired. I'd gotten kicked out of the biggest church in town. I'd gotten disowned by my siblings who took me to court over family inheritance trust issues. Even during that time, I was diagnosed with a malignant melanoma cancer, but nothing compared to the worst thing that could happen to me. At that same time, Oklahoma legislator had introduced a bill that said gay people cannot have custody of their children. Well, my ex-wife and I had just went through a very civil divorce. I was going to have the kids three days a week. She'd have them four days a week. We were going to co-parent our kids. Um, she knew I could be a great father. I'd always been a good provider. I was going to be a very good financial provider for them. I was very responsible with that. I took that serious. And now Oklahoma has stepped in and said, we don't believe you should have custody of your kids. There was nothing in my life that was as bad as that. 
And I was willing to do anything to make that stop. And so I knew that phone number from when I had called it back, you know, in the early 1980s. And, you know, I could remember it. It still spelled out something. And so I kept trying to go through prefixes. And I finally got a hold of that number. And the people that answered said, yes, we're familiar with this bill. In fact, we're taking a group to the Capitol, Nancy McDonald, it's P-Flag Lobby Day at the Oklahoma Capitol, and uh, we're going there, and um, you're welcome to go with us. And I did. Well, I'd been this real conservative Republican, was known very, very prominently in evangelical circles. And so I went from office to office and told these legislators my story. And then, you know, I worked in the court system, so they knew me from there. And I think whenever they they finally realized this was going to be stupid, it was going to impact. Here's a man who wants to take care of his kids. He and his wife in a court of law have made the decision. They're going to have joint custody. They're going to co-parent their children. Anyway, the bill was defeated. And from that moment on, at that time, it was called Tulsa Oklahomans for Human Rights. Now, it had my loyalty. I cannot emphasize that enough. Because for me, at this point of impact, the thing that I needed them the most for, they were there for me. And fortunately, I am one of thousands of individuals who, in their time of crisis, the organization and its membership and its staff and its donors uh, were there for people over and over again. Even today, we had individuals come in and there we were ready to um, help them in their time of need. So that has been my history, and that's had, how I've been involved. For several years, I was, uh, you know, I mean, they didn't know what to do with me. I was just, I just barely was gay. I mean, you know, the only thing I knew is I wanted to kiss a guy, but that I hadn't kissed a guy, and I had no fashion sense, and I didn't really care much for Broadway tunes, and I, and I, and I always joke I was raised by lesbians because. My friends were some, a lesbian couple, and they didn't know what to do with a gay guy who was just newly out. So they took me to flag football every Sunday. <laughs> and so I was raised by um, lesbians, and that was how I started out. And so I, would, I wanted to get involved. Well, they didn't know what to do with me because here was this um, evangelical person uh, from an evangelical background. Here was this conservative Republican um, here was this person who we knew had been very opposed to us. So they didn't, they didn't really want to have anything to do with me. But Greg Gatewood was organizing the pride picnics in those days because the city wouldn't let us have a pride, parade, a pride parade. And so, you know, I said, I want to volunteer. I want to volunteer. And he goes, OK, well, you can help me. You told me you can help me pick up the trash and clean the porta potties. And those were the cleanest porta potties. <laughs> and I made sure that place was spotless. Uh, and I did that for years uh, before, you know, we finally had our first pride parade. And so uh, I just got known as a worker bee that if we had a situation, I was so grateful, so appreciative. It was coming from a sincere heart that I was willing to do whatever I could. And over the years, <laughs> I kept getting volunteered to help with stuff. And that's actually how I became um, the executive director. And everybody that works at the Equality Center had the same route that I did. They were volunteers for years, some of them for years before they ever came on staff. And that's what we've learned, the model for us. It was set by Dennis Neal, who's one of the founders. I mean, you can still find Dennis around the building. Nobody would expect him to to do the volunteer time that he does, but he does. And you may find him cleaning the bathrooms. You may find him back in the alley with rubber gloves and trash, picking up the trash that's been dug out of the dumpsters because he doesn't want the neighbors to feel bad that somebody's dug trash out of our dumpster. And I mean, he, that's the way he approaches things. And I try to follow his example. And so we kind of joke around the organization. Um, we don't say W. Uh, JD, what would Jesus do? We say, what would Dennis do? So we have <laughs> WWDD, and that's because we follow his example. And it's been very important to me that the people who want to continue to join together with us and do that work, that has to be their approach. They have to really be willing to serve and, and see it as to see it as an honor, 
and not see it as some subordinate role. You try to look at the arc of America's issues with LGBTQ people, and it's it's almost like every time one like one gets uh, you know allowed in, they're like, well, now we have to tag the whatever letters next. So right now, what multiple states throughout the country are dealing with is these transphobic, you know, sports related, you know, or just trans in general laws. And so what you're telling people is just to literally just get involved and to make sure that they, their representatives know that they have trans constituents and those people would like to just live normally, please. I always am troubled over the trend to specifically attack the most vulnerable in the LGBTQ community. And of course, transgender individuals um, are under just constant attack. It has just been horrific what we've witnessed over the last six months. And I didn't think anybody could be as bad as Oklahoma, but Tennessee and Mississippi and Arkansas, Arkansas, Missouri. um, Yeah, they have proven that they have no restraint on their their true wickedness, which is to oppress people. We've had as many as 18 families reach out to us who are to the east of us. They're in Tennessee, Mississippi, and Arkansas, and they know about the Equality Center and the services that we provide uh, for the transgender community. And so they called us to see, you know, is this bill going to be defeated in Oklahoma? We're looking for places to move. And um, we could not. We could not recommend they move to Tulsa. As much as I love Oklahoma and Tulsa, I mean, my family's been here forever, and I mean forever. But we had to tell them things are too uncertain. And so we have been working with folks in Colorado and Denver where things are a little more solid, more progressive, more established, and have support in the public policy area especially um, influential legislators, where we said, we think you can be safe. So, I mean, it's horrible that I'm having to look for refugee camps for families who just want to protect their kids. You know, they want to be able to go see counselors, they want to be able to see medical providers, and they want their children to be able to participate in extracurricular activities. And I cannot guarantee them. We kept this bill from coming to the floor for the vote, and, and I have to be honest with you, it was Republicans that stopped it from coming to the floor for a vote. Reasonable Republicans and uh, majority leaders in my in our majority leaders kept it from coming from a coming to a vote, and they promised they would. But I mean, up until the last hours of the session, we thought they were going to pass one of these bills. I can't guarantee that that won't be back on the agenda next session. And so I cannot promise a family that if they move here, they'll be safe. It has given us a little bit of relief. Uh, Families who lived here who were looking to move, they have felt like at this point that maybe they'll be able to stay, and and I'm hoping. Here's the irony of it. Some of the first sex changes done in America were done in Oklahoma. At Oklahoma Baptist University Hospital in Oklahoma City up until 1972. I can't make this up. Really, they were done here by the Baptist. And then the Baptist had a, a purge in their movement where they purged academia and science uh, from their universities and their seminaries, and they threw that program out. When I went to work for the courts, as I told you, I was fired by one executive, one, one elected officer, and then I went to work for another one, eventually landed uh, with Sally House Smith. And so one of the first departments wasn't the first department. It was the second department she placed me in. First day I showed up in a civil division. And so the uh, supervisor said, uh, train Toby. Of course, they all knew who I was because I'd worked for this other elected official. She said, train Toby how to do a name change. Now, this this was in the 90s, the mid-90s. And uh, so she showed me how to do a name change. 
and she, you know, showed me how to file the petition. Um, under Oklahoma law, anybody can come in and change their name for whatever reason, as long as they're not evading creditors or criminal prosecution. You know, nobody says you can't change your name. And so she showed this clerk showed me how to do that. And then she said, and now I'm going to show you how we do a petition for someone who's doing uh, sex, um, sex change. And that's how she worded it. Today, we refer to it as sex confirmation surgeries. And so she just flipped through it and blah, blah, blah. And I looked at it and I looked at this and I looked at that and I looked at that. I said, I don't see the difference. And she went, exactly. There's no difference. And don't you dare let the clerk find you mocking people, laughing at people, pointing at people, or asking inappropriate questions. You treat them exactly the same as a petitioner filing for a name change, regardless of the reason. And I just looked at her and I said, do you have a lot of individuals who come here to change their name because they're getting a sex change? And she did not miss a beat and said, about three a week. And I can tell you, I worked in that division for 15 years. And every week, there were as many as three to four petitioners who were coming to change their names because they were transitioning. And why I always tell who was doing the first sex changes in this part of the country, Oklahoma Baptist University Hospital, and up until 1972. And how many people are having their names change because um, their gender transitions? The reason I always make sure I share that is we live in this smokescreen that we think that everybody is just like us and everybody's experience is just like us. And it is not. And you and I are surrounded by many, many persons who are transgender. They are either post-surgery or pre-surgery or middle of their surgeries or may not have surgeries at all. And their gender is non-binary. And the way they identify, they don't use she or he, and they find themselves to be more comfortable just using they or them. And we act like that's a new thing. It is not a new thing. It came here on the Trail of Tears. When they brought the Cherokee Nation, when they drove them from their ancestral helm lines in their own diaries, They tell us that the people that cared for, the people who got sick and died, were their two-spirit people because they believed that they had a sacred gift to care for the sick and to make sure that their dead were honored according to their customs. And we have those written in the diaries of the Cherokee people when they came here on the Trail of Tears. And then there's no mention of them after that. Because of assimilation and conversion, the tribes adopted uh, the ways of their European, their European conquerors. And we erased a whole segment of people who are still there with us, always have been, are there to this day. And we continue to act like they don't exist or that there's something wrong if they don't confirm with gender roles. When I went to work for the courthouse, we had one female judge, and she she pissed off an oil firm on a lawsuit, and they got her voted out. When I left the courts, we had 19 female judges. And the difference they had made, when I first went to work to the courthouse, female persons could not wear anything but dresses and open-toed sandals. And when I left, the standard dress for Female persons at the courthouse were dress lacks, and uh, they could still wear open-toed shoes, but they did not allow men to wear open-toed <laughs> sandals. And and Joey Gudwin, a good friend of mine, uh, his father is uh, one of our prominent attorneys, he, he brought a complaint that he should be able to wear open-toed <laughs> sandals, and they let him do it, and they decided <laughs> they could. What I don't, I've never fully understood, it's like you accept other people for who they are or you don't. I've never understood the spectrum where some people are okay with gays and lesbians getting married. They're like, okay, I've been told I'm okay with this, but not, not anything more. Like that just confuses me. And if it confuses me, I'm going to get angry about it. And I don't want it. Like I don't, because of your past, I imagine you have a sort of clear picture of 
how do these people rationalize this to themselves? Like, what is the harm exactly in a trans person to them? Well, I think some of it is they they misunderstand um, they misunderstand it, and so the responsibility is on your part. If you don't understand it, then you educate yourself, and it's it's accessible and it's easy. And if you don't understand it, call us, and we'll be happy to let you meet a bona fide trans person who will be happy to break it down to you to understand uh, their experience and what their life is like. and And I think that's one of the things that you're seeing. Gay and lesbian persons and uh, gender non-conforming persons, their visibility, I mean, that was the whole reason for a pride parade or pride marches or being visible, is they realized that things would never change as long as people thought they didn't know anybody. You know, their family members died of AIDS and they hid those as secrets or they whispered about their aunt's um roommate who lived with her and, you know, their old maid aunt and her old maid friend. And they just whispered about it until, you know, lesbian and gay and bi persons and uh, gender expansive persons became more visible. And so what we have witnessed in the last 10 years is in this region, in this part of the country, trans persons were finally fed up with being ignored and uh you know, stigmatized and them not being able to find medical services, not being able to find counselors and them losing their jobs uh, whenever they uh, made the decision that they were going to transition. And so they realized that if they weren't more visible and raise this issue, I mean, there were years I couldn't get media to cover. Every year we would have a memorial that we would do in in honor of all the trans persons who had been murdered that year on, and we would every November 20th, which is the International Day of Transgender Remembrance, uh, we remember all of those. And every year, hundreds of them are murdered around the world. And uh, this past year, you know, we had Dustin Parker in on January 1st, 2020, down in McAllister, Oklahoma. And then we had Aubrey Damon, who's been missing for over a year, an indigenous trans woman. So it was personal. It was, you know, Oklahomans uh, this past November when when we remembered them. But I couldn't get the media to cover the stories. They they wouldn't talk about it. It was like they were willing to talk about gay, gay rights issues, but not talk about trans issues. And then the difference was uh, one of the reporters from the Tulsa World she wrote the story about, she reached out to us and Dr. Laura Aerosmith, who was on our board of directors, and was trying to really establish our transgender programs at the Equality Center. She met with her, interviewed her, and Laura told her about a student who was a part of our, our group. And so we had had the support programs at the center, but we were beginning to realize we needed to diversify them. You know, there need to be one for uh, trans male persons, trans female persons, spouses needed the support, parents need the support, younger trans kids needed, um, you know, to be in a group of other individuals of similar age and similar experience. And so she told this reporter about Katie Hill, who was Coming at that time to the adult group with the mother because there wasn't a program specifically for her. And eventually, Katie uh, became the very first openly trans high school student to graduate from an Oklahoma high school. And the Tulsa World did the story about her starting her transition, I believe it was her fifth grade or junior year, uh, becoming Katie. And then they did that on Mother's Day. And then on the year she graduated, there was she was on the front page of the Tulsa World on Mother's Day. She had completed that, went off to college. And now, you know, I think she lives in, in Colorado. But that visibility, that family's one visibility, we just were flooded with families. And, and that happens every time there's a story about it. We're flooded uh, with more families who are needing the support and the help. Yeah, and I think one of the things that frustrates me the most is that I don't think these people are actively wanting to potentially endanger people's lives. I, I want to think that at least the elected officials, while they're doing that, I don't think that, that they're thinking, you know, I want to put these people in danger. But we know that a lot of LGBT, especially trans people, end up committing suicide rather than 
coming out or because they're too afraid. And so I, I have friends whose kids were suicidal before coming out and since then have been a completely different person. And just seeing that those stories are out there and easily accessible, but that they still want to do these things to keep people from coming out and sharing themselves with the world and potentially saving their lives. Well, I don't, I don't disagree with you that they, they may not admit that they don't want to kill them or hurt them. But their philosophy is that they're an aberration and that it's wrong. And if you look too far in some of their materials, you'll find that they find this, they, they admit that the solution is just to wipe, wipe our presence off. And they're not just, you know, they're not just trans people. They're anybody who um, doesn't fit into their narrow view, which is a very narrow view because they're unwilling to interpret things different or add to things that we know scientifically to be true. And so when you tell someone you we are going to pass laws that will punish parents who seek medical attention or mental health support for their children, we're going to punish them. We're going to punish the mental health providers or the medical professionals who provide those services for these individuals. When you pass a law, which Arkansas did, you've guaranteed that people will die. And it will be from neglect, isolation, suicide. They will turn to situations to cope that will re-traumatize them because they've already been traumatized. I mean, when you have an entire state against you, when as far as you can look around you, everything from the church house to the outhouse to the state house says that there's something wrong with you. The trauma that comes from that, and you know, Oklahoma already leads the country in our population struggle with you know A scores, uh, adverse childhood experiences, and then to be LGBTQ, to be trans, and to add that into that, they will have blood on their hands. They will be responsible for people's deaths. We've seen it before. And you can understand families being desperate to find places where they'll just be safe. I feel like we should make it a sort of federal law that if you write a law that is against a group the Nazis were also against, you shouldn't pass that law, right? I feel like we could theoretically, a decade ago, I would say that's something we could all agree on. Yeah. Uh, the last few years have changed my mind on that. But, you know, it's the same. It's just like you find the most vulnerable group. And you point everyone in that direction. You know, right now we have before Congress the Equality Act, which is just sitting there. In fact, I'm scheduled. We're supposed to meet with Senator Lankford's office and Senator Inhofe's office uh, to try to let them hear what it's like to be LGBTQ in Oklahoma and how these this the Equality Act, which would um, dismantle discrimination against LGBTQ persons and would would block a lot of these bills that we're talking about and would bring them to an end when it would violate federal law, because technically there's not a federal law that protects us like that. I mean, the Supreme Court has already said you should not discriminate against uh, trans persons or LGBT persons in the workplace. They've already said you should not be discriminated against when it comes to marriage equality. They just refused to hear the case out of the high school kid who wanted to be able to use the bathroom that he identified with, that he looked like and he'd been using, and then they decided he couldn't use it anymore. And it took him 10 years. He's now graduated from college, and they just refused to hear that case, and they let stand the lower court's ruling that that's, that, that state had violated his civil rights. Yet we still do not have a federal law that says you cannot discriminate against people because of their sexual orientation or their gender expression and identity. Everybody I know has a sexual orientation. Everybody I know has a gender identity and expression. So we're not asking for you just to protect one group and leave another group off. We're saying all of us need to realize that our sexual orientation and the way we present ourselves and gender and how we identify and how we present ourselves should not be the basis for you to be treated bad, to be denied housing, to be not denied medical services, to be not denied employment, or to be able to buy some property or to be able to go into a restaurant. Those should not be reasons. 
Now, I know this because I'm old. I'm 60 plus years old. And I have lived through the experiences of the civil rights movement. And my family was very involved in trying to stand up for immigrant farm workers, for people of color, for integrating school systems, for fighting for, you know, women, women's rights. And uh, also my parents would have, uh, they accepted that one of their children was different than all the others. And they didn't want me to feel bad. And they didn't want somebody to treat me bad. But I've known in my lifetime laws outlawing discrimination, and yet we still have it. I mean, all you have to do is ask a black person, if you make a law, then it'll stop it, correct? (laughs) No, it doesn't. And so then you have to ask yourself, if public policy and putting it on the books won't end it, then what will end it? And that is a commitment from us as a human race to be more civil. And what we've known from our history uh, on planet Earth is we do not choose compassion, humanity, and civility until we've almost killed each other, until we've just almost wiped each other off the planet. And it seems like that seems to be the destiny we're headed is that individuals are so resistant to a civil, humane, compassionate society that they're willing to spill blood uh, around the world over it. There's shelf life on me, but there's not on people your age. And so you have ahead of you the opportunity to do better than we did. Now, we, you know, we gave attempts at it. That's why sometimes when it hurts, because when others say you didn't do enough, you you were saying, well, yeah, you're right. We didn't. But that hurts that that's what you're focused on. And you're more focused on what we didn't get done instead of us all joining together and let's get more done together. And so you can't I don't think it's productive to throw out the old because they weren't able to get the job done. Let's figure out a way to continue to improve and improve access to individuals and to move towards more civility and uh, more respect for each other. Now, all of that sounds super simple, and none of it is. And it's just theory, and it's just rhetoric. That's one of the complaints I have, is that there's too many people who are sitting around teaching and not doing, and there's too many people who are sitting around listening to the, the theory, and here's what we ought to do, Instead of just doing the basics of getting involved in people's lives and trying to help. So what, what can people do? What are, what are some concrete steps that you think people can do to help? Help you, help the Equality Center, help the people in their life that they that may know? Or... Well, my, my feelings for what you can do to help us at the Equality Center is not just us, help others too. Not just us, but find other similar organizations and good causes uh, to get behind. And don't go in and think that, you know, you were there to tell everybody how to do it or that you were there to fix it or that they are fortunate to have you. I mean, really good causes are looking for people who will come in and be the worker bees. And you end up becoming, your great ideas just end up flourishing and they influence people around you and they're willing to start listening to you. And um, I, I know from experience, there have been many times that I have walked into situations and I just thought the place was a train wreck and, you know, I'm here to help you and I can't believe you don't see how gifted I am, and if you just do it the way. Instead, I'm disrespecting the people who've already put in the time. So find a cause. And and everybody's cause, it's like they hear it in their ears. It's like what strums their hearts. You know, it's like they maybe they do it because they have a family member or a neighbor, or there's some image they saw that they cannot get out of their head. Show up. Find out who's doing that work in this region and say, I'm here to help. 
I'll do whatever you need me to do. If you need me to sweep the floors, carry out the trash, you need me to stuff envelopes, if you need me to clean the toilets, choose the route of I'm here to help. I'm not here to boss you around or tell you how to do it. Because what happens is that becomes very demoralizing to the people who've already been done the work, doing the work. And they would be much more willing to listen if you showed them that you valued what's been done already. Now, this is this is old man talk. This is what, you know, I should be on a rocker, rocking. <laughs> I really say, should have a drop for you old know, man talk. You know, yeah. say, you know, this is me saying, now, Sonny, if you really want to make a difference. And that's why I, if, if, if you cut me, I probably would bleed rainbow. I spend a ton of time every day at the Equality Center, but it is not the only cause that I believe in. It is not the only thing that I'm, you know, troubled. I'm, 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 I believe in reparations and I believe there's got to be a way we can get there to fix that. I also am very concerned about folks who have physical challenges not being able to access and get around, you know, and we we saw this year at the Pride Festival, it seemed like a good idea to have 42,000 people at the biggest parade and festival ever, except it showed us immediately that people who had physical challenges, it was inaccessible for them. I also found out that I have a bridge that we just built, the IDL just built, and it does not have, it does not have ramps. It's, you drive off, you know, it's a, it's a bump. Just things like that really trouble me. And, you know, I serve on the Human Rights Commission, so that stuff gets me all worked up. I'm also extremely concerned about uh, the violence we saw directed at Asian persons. That troubles me because we've been down this road before, and I don't want uh, the people in my life who are of Asian descent, who I love and value, I don't want them and their families to be afraid. And so those are some causes that, you know, I mean, I know I'm supposed to be here talking about LGBT issues, but but I live in a city and I have family and I have grandchildren. And so they naturally influence what what I see is as more issues, bigger issues. You know, I'm extremely troubled that our police department is shrinking. So we we're not going to have law enforcement. and. A month ago, had somebody break into my house, and I know what that was like to come home and have your house broken into. I mean, I've had my vehicles vandalized. I've been assaulted multiple times. The place I've been worked at, but I'm telling you, nothing gets your goat like coming home at night and somebody has rifled your house and stole your grandma's silver. I don't even know why I had my grandma's silver because I certainly wasn't her, but it's gone now, and uh, my grandmother's silver and my grandmother's Native American rattles that we used to take to stomp dances when I was a kid, that just broke my heart. And, you know, I felt bad for the police officers that had to come out and deal with this. Just this weekend, we were dealing with an individual who had been sexually assaulted, and we could not get a police officer to be able to come to the hospital so they could do the exam, the rape uh, exam, because the police officer had to come and initiate. And, And so those kind of things trouble me. So, and if somebody wanted to specifically volunteer either at the quality center, because I I can say personally. Is that that 918 gays number still up and (laughs) around? That's my question. Okay. 918-743-4297, the gays. And, but you can also go to okq.org and uh, right there on the homepage, it says, if you want to volunteer, you can fill out the form and then our volunteer coordinators will get with you and find out where your passion is. I, I was just going to say for me personally, I've, I've often wondered, you know, because I am, I'm cisgender, you know, I always kind of wonder, is it, is it appropriate? Should I be volunteering at the equality center? Is it? Yes. About 35% of the volunteers um, identify as cisgender heterosexual. We have people on our board and, Many of our facilitators, I mean, lots of times for us, people are there because they have a, a, a close loved one. They have a family member. Some of our best volunteers are our moms who are there volunteering for their children. The organization serves about 70,000 people a year. We have people who drive almost three hours to access our services because there really isn't anything. 
And you you won't find it in Arkansas and you won't find it in Missouri and you won't find it in Kansas and, you know, the top part of Texas. And I mean, you have to go all the way to Denver, Colorado. And then there is a center in, Dal- in Dallas that is really ramping up. But, you know, it took them 20 years to build one and they've only had it for about four years. And the director of the Dallas Center grew up in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. So we have lots of individuals who come to us because we're it. We're open seven days a week. You know, we have to be open every holiday because holidays can be triggers for our community. So there's plenty of places for people to jump in. And of course, the pandemic exposed our weakness there because prior to that, we had about 200 weekly volunteers. And with the with the pandemic and being closed to public. Now, the center was always open because we have a medical clinic and counseling offices, but the the volunteer crew, many of those individuals were not able to be with us and it wasn't wise for them to be with us and they have not returned. So we are having to rebuild our volunteer base, which is critical to us because we cert- we, our staff is so small and until just I'm you're you're the first one for me to say this on a show like this. This is uh, we just recently for the first time ever were approved for public dollars. So we have wow. been the, we have been the reci- <laughs> yeah we've been the recipient of a grant from the city of Tulsa, which will help us expand uh, individuals who started their own businesses, especially LGBT individuals, because you know that's an issue in this part of the mm-hmm. country because finding a place to do business or people who want to do business with us. And so it was uh, some of the COVID money that we qualified for. First time we've ever got those kind of dollars. Toby, I mean, thank you. I know you've had a long day and hopefully our final activity is where we'll bring the joy. So we normally ask our guests when we are allowed to interview in person um, to look around my nerd office and to find something that either calls to you or you're so curious about that you would like us to explain it to you. Wow, I've I've actually been watching a lot <laughs> around us, and I guess probably the Skyler brothers. Oh, the Skyler brothers! I keep looking over there, trying to see exactly what that is, and kind of explain. Is that sure? So those are they are two uh, twin brothers who are comedians, and they came to I guess the last in person uh, was it Blue Whale Blue Whale, Co- Comedy, Blue Whale Comedy Festival, and they did a live podcast that uh, we went to, and it was really funny. So I bought their CD and um, they are also Jewish as was their producer. So there's a funny picture of us on the internet. Uh, I think maybe it was Chris who was like, everybody do something Jewish. And we all did the same like expression <laughs> at the same time. And comedians have a lot of specials and whatnot, but they don't necessarily come out with physical media you can buy anymore. So I put that right, right below my, uh, the golden girls Funko pops. So they're called the Sklar mm-hmm. brothers. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. I think Sklar, Sklar country is the name of the podcast. I believe it could be. Well, now I'll have to, I'll have to yeah, follow up with they you. Are, they are funny. And I would not want to be remiss and just um, give a shout out to the time that Jesse and I went to a 1,400-year-old um, Turkish bathhouse. That's right. And, That's right. Uh, that, it was amazing, but I felt like they were sizzling me on a grill. I mean, they threw you <laughs> on the hottest pavement they did. and threw hot water on you. And that one guy just like punched your arms a lot and then and, squeezed you really hard. And so but it felt great. Yeah. Jesse kept having to help me up off stuff. And so I guess they thought he was uh, my son because I think they, they, (laughs) your your dad. Yeah. I was like, what? Oh, (laughs) took Uh, me a second. But man, it was weird, but felt good afterwards. It did. And uh, we needed it. Sometimes I, you know, I'll see see something like that when I'm watching something. Oh yeah, I've been to that in Istanbul. I I know that. I know that. that (laughs) But it was kind of remarkable to be, you know, sitting there and experiencing. Uh, something and that's been happening in that place for fourteen hundred years. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that place was also in between two incredibly old uh, church on one side and mosque on the other side. So it was a uh, that was fun. But listen, no one would think that going a visit to Turkey would be less stressful than going to other places. But for us, it was very relaxing. It was, <laughs> and we uh, went to holy services at that's uh, right at uh, the synagogue there in Istanbul. And that was pretty meaningful. Yes, yeah, so we had to go through security, but. Uh, yeah, well, Toby, thank you. And yeah, we, thank we you. Will, what we do is we take a picture of our guests with the thing that, that they chose. So we'll get a picture of that Very with good. you. And we will make sure to, one, include that phone number in our show notes. Of course. As well as your website mm-hmm. and all the different things. So, yeah. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Oh, yeah. Thank you thank so you. much.
Thank you all for listening to our conversation with Toby. It got it got real. And as much as Chris and I like to make jokes, like there are people out there whose just mere existence annoys other people so much that they create laws to oppress them for really no reason. So if you're one of those people who feels like you care about other people and you haven't really given much thought to LGBTQ or trans issues, like now is the time to call your representative, donate money, and especially donate your time. So thank you all for listening. And please, you know, all of the regular podcast stuff, please subscribe, blah, blah, blah. Follow us on Facebook. And if you haven't gotten your vaccine yet, again, I ask, what is wrong with you?